Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, everyone. This is Season 2, Episode 38, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Here we are in the first week of October. That means here in Colorado, in the high country, the leaves have not only changed, they've dropped off the trees. And that means the end of October is steaming toward us, which is, of course, Halloween. And Halloween is an interesting holiday in our kind of in-and-out season of holidays throughout the year, because it it forcibly forces us to focus on the supernatural. And it's not like we don't have the supernatural kind of pressing its way into our lives in, during the rest of the year, but we really love the kinds of uh, sort of dark, mysterious, quasi-scary things that happen around Halloween. When I was a kid, we had haunted houses, but they were like Charlie Brown haunted houses, you know, like ghosts with multiple eye holes in their sheets and things like that. Today's haunted houses are like legitimately scary, like they're like Hollywood productions. And so we flock to these things, and we're saturated by the supernatural at this time. And yet, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, uh, we have this sort of wall between us and the supernatural side of Jesus, and how that might break into our everyday life. We're fine about fantasizing about the supernatural, or watching it in our films, or reading it in our books, but we don't really want it showing up in the compartment of our everyday life. So uh, we thought that this month would be a good month to focus on something that is actually a huge part of Jesus' everyday life, and the people who are his best friends saw the supernatural happening constantly. So we thought it would be a good time to focus on this aspect of who Jesus is and how this is getting lived out in our lives. So the supernatural, just to kind of start off with a foundational understanding of what that word means, it means that it's uh, above or beyond what is natural to us in our natural world. It's unexplainable by natural law, it's a phenomenon that's abnormal. It's science doesn't have a good explanation for it. That's what supernatural is. And Becky, may, Becky Nader's here. She's just you know waiting to be able to to talk. I was like, are you ever going to tell people that I'm here? No. And now he I, normally doesn't wait this long. Now I just did. She's here. He was like holding on for an element of surprise. Is it was Becky a, here today? It, it was a suspense. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Becky's done a little research into you know, the kinds of supernatural things that, that kind of populate our life and our entertainment. So why don't you launch into that? Well, you can't really turn on the TV these days and not find something that has a supernatural element to it. Especially, I don't have cable at home, but we do use Netflix. And I think Netflix in particular, their series that they're creating that are is just by Netflix, they seem to be super interested in the supernatural. So a lot of their shows have some sort of supernatural element to them. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting is I was kind of researching into like how much kind of supernatural stuff are we being exposed to? 
So the CW has a really popular show called The 100. It's like a teenage show. It's about these kids who had to grow up on a space station because there was a nuclear war and they come back after 100 years and when it's habitable and they're you know going to repopulate the earth. And so it's supposed to be about teenagers having to grow up kind of fast. And then all of a sudden the show apparently turns into a bunch of supernatural stuff happening on earth. All of this, like when they come back, there's all these like supernatural beings there. Um, the other thing I found out is that the popular show, The Game of Thrones, and Rick didn't even know this, which is really about like old world kings fighting against each other for more power, world domination, that kind of thing. There's actually an element of supernatural that's, that is uh, presented in the show, I think, a couple seasons, and they find out about this zombie nation across the wall called the White Walkers, and there's this red witch, and she's controlling some of the kings. Uh, and are, are dragons considered supernatural? Maybe. You? Yeah, dragons they're, might they're, be. They're, they're fantasy beasts. Yeah, they're That's like true. fantasy beasts. Yeah. Yep, there's the dragon lady. Um, so even kind of shows that didn't really, like if you read their initial description, you would never think, oh, this is going to be a supernatural show. Um, have a lot of supernatural elements. And, you know, everybody knows about the popular um, movies like the Twilight series, Harry Potter, um, Fantastic Beasts, and Where to Find Them, which came out this year. And then also, you know, the very popular television show, The Walking Dead, is all about a supernatural element of zombies. I, If you guys are on the pigs, I did a, a live video from my cubicle last week, and I talked about how I just can't deal with the zombies, so um, <laughs> I won't be able to watch that show, but I found it really If you're a zombie out there listening, just recognize <laughs> Becky cannot I handle cannot you. I cannot handle you. So, so it's prime time to go after her, because she's just not going to have any... Res- no, I have actually, I have had this conversation with my husband multiple times. If there is a zombie apocalypse, I will be the first one to die. <laughs> I give up. I'll just be like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. I'm not made for it. <laughs> I can't deal with the zombies. You know, what's interesting is you go down that list. We could just keep going and going and going because th- there's this new show, Midnight Texas, which mm. is all about the supernatural. There's And the supernatural sometimes encroaches into shows that, are, that we would consider just natural uh, nat- uh, p- pictures of natural life it it encroaches in everything it's just surrounding us it immerses us and and so you have to ask the question why why are we so interested in the supernatural what what psychological need or what what uh, what itch is it helping us to scratch so psychologists say uh, one theory they have is that it's because we're we're scared of the paranormal. And so by having entertainment that includes the paranormal, it gives us a way to kind of edge our way into embracing what we are scared about it. It's a way for us to overcome our fear. So if you if you watch the thing you're most afraid of, it kind of helps you to kind of take the edge off of your fear. Uh, that's why uh, psychologists like to do, you know, s- sort of uh, critical analysis of shows like The Walking Dead. So uh, the Beckinator found this quote from a psychiatrist. Where did this come from again? This is in Psychology Today. Okay, so in Psychology Today, this person said, as a psychiatrist, I'd also like to note that the show The Walking Dead uses these moral questions as a means for exploring the varied ways we humans react to terror. In the sometimes confusing world of psychiatric phenomenology, 
this aspect of the show in and of itself holds considerable value. So what the what they're saying is that it's a it's a way for us to understand how we respond to trauma and terror in our everyday lives if we see it happening in a supernatural setting. So it it kind of it's kind of like a a school that helps us to come to grips with the everyday terrors of our life that aren't that we wouldn't call supernatural, but we can see him being lived out in these supernatural circumstances. Well, and actually in this article, he said in particular the writer of The Walking Dead is actually a psychologist, and that he what he does is he uses episodes to say, like, in this episode, he wants to, sh- to focus on PTSD. So what he's trying to illustrate is how five different people could be going through the same PTSD and all of them handling it different. Like mm. one person retreats or one person gets angry or one person is a fighter or, and how that actually they are all suffering from PTSD, but that we, so he, he's doing it as a way to sh- kind of, to educate people that different people display different symptoms of the same disorder. It doesn't always have to be the same. So I thought that was really interesting that even some of these shows, with, which you, if you think about it, like anxiety, um, PTSD, these are growing things in our society that um, we're becoming more and more aware of. So is there a correlation between the fact that we're seeing a heightened amount of these things and we're seeing a heightened um, desire for people to sit and watch these shows? Well, um, you, you can think about in terms of um, the the growth in our culture of our ability to know everything that's happening at any place in the world at the same time that it's happening, the human brain has has a limited capacity for ingesting trauma. And when you have access to trauma happening around the world all at the same time, it can wash over us like an interior tsunami. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to psychologically cope with all of the things we're being asked to cope with, especially if we are active in the digital world where, you know, there's a 24-hour news cycle and there's also all kinds of inputs, Facebook, our Facebook feed, all, all kinds of things that didn't exist, you know, 10, 20 years ago that sort of simply immerse us in difficult things happening around the world. I often say to my kids that the only one wired to handle all of this at once is God. Yeah, we we are so not true. we are our frame is not capable of handling all of this and so i think we we see these the this the rise of the supernatural in our entertainment as a an expression of of us having dealing with traumas that we know are unreal in some ways so therefore it's kind of a safe laboratory for us to to see how people react to these things and and helps to comfort ourselves in the midst of our own trauma. So so th- this idea that the supernatural is a significant aspect of our life, and yet there's this firewall between the supernatural that, that we uh, take into ourselves as entertainment, or we might uh, hear about somewhere, there's a firewall between that and our everyday life. What we're going to explore now is Jesus' relationship to the supernatural, and uh, then we'll loop back to this idea of this firewall between the supernatural and our everyday life. So the truth is, if you were hanging out with Jesus uh, during the time of his three ministry years, you were one of his disciples or one of the hangers-on that was following him around, pretty much every day 
you saw him do something that had no natural scientific explanation for. And it wasn't just the, the, the healings, which were extraordinary enough. I mean, take out the, the physical healings that, that he did all the time. Um, we only get a, a kind of a snippet of how many of those he did. It just says, here's a snapshot of, of a day or a two or two days in Jesus' life where he's healing all these people, and this happened a lot more than that. So he's he's healing people. He's even raising people from the dead. But, Walking on water. Right. And th- but then you get to those kinds of supernatural things where he's. It, it's not about healing somebody. It's just his mastery over the elements. So he's walking on, on the water. or he's, he's Calming the storms. Yeah. He's, he's speaking to a fig tree and withering it on the spot because he has uh, authority over that. Or he's uh, calling Nathaniel, uh, one of his disciples... When he's too far away to see, he says, says to Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under that tree, even though Nathaniel was too far away to see. <laughs> what? Why, why are you, <laughs> Jesus, why are you telling Nathaniel that you can see him when you can't see him? And so sometimes Jesus seems to know the thoughts of others. Uh, um, sometimes he does things that are simply designed to meet people's physical needs. Like he, the, the miracles of the loaves and the fishes really were precipitated by Jesus recognizing that people were hungry. <laughs> That's we're making it. wine at the wedding. Yeah, uh, his first miracle at the uh, at the wedding at Cana was simply to fill a physical need that uh, happened at this wedding. They ran out of wine, so he, in the end, uh, 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 abides by what his his mother asks him to do and and uh, creates some wine on the spot. So he has these. It, it's not possible to to hang out with Jesus and not experience the supernatural. He he lives naturally and supernaturally as if they're the same thing. I, one of my favorite uh, ways of thinking about this is something we've talked about on the podcast before. When he w- walks in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm across the sea and passes by close enough to the disciples who are terrified in their boat, uh, he passes by close enough for them to see him. And the, the Scripture says he intended to just walk past them. So, Jesus, what are you thinking here? <laughs> he, he, you're almost uh, walking across the water past the disciples as if you were simply taking an evening stroll. So he doesn't really act as though these supernatural things are anything to make a big deal out of. He, he simply acts as though this is normal, everyday life, and this is what you do in or, normal, everyday life. So some people rationalize all this, and they say, well, that the time that Jesus uh, was walking the earth in, in, his, in his ministry it was just a very supernatural time. So the people uh, had a very rudimentary understanding of scientific phenomena. We, we just passed this time when we had the solar eclipse, and I heard you know so many stories about how people used to think about the solar eclipse like it was some kind of supernatural phenomenon. We know that it's a scientific phenomenon. So so some people say, well, Jesus lived in a time when um, there were all of these supernatural reasons given for scientific phenomenon, so that's why he acted supernaturally so much, because it was sort of the currency of the day for people. You know, we can rationalize the number of times and how often Jesus acted supernaturally, but we we just can't get away from the truth that this was a major part of his life, and he said things to us like, hey, um, when this Holy Spirit comes, you're going to do the things I do, and even greater things than I've done. And he wasn't just speaking to his disciples in the moment, he was speaking to us across time, 
we are going to be doing the things Jesus did and greater things, and we can't imagine doing even one of the things that Jesus did supernaturally, but why is that? Um, I, there's a, this great story that I put in uh, the Jesus-centered life, and I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but I thought I'd just read you the actual account of the story. It's by Mark Galley in his book, Jesus Mean and Wild, and he's simply telling a story of an early encounter he had with some Laotian refugees in his, uh, in his church when he was an associate pastor. And these refugees were in a kind of a new members class, and Mark Galley was uh, teaching them the story of Jesus speaking to the storm and calming the waves. And so here, I'll just pick this up with Mark Galley telling this story. After we read the passage in which Jesus calms the storm, I began, as I usually did, with more theologically sophisticated groups. I asked them about the storms in their lives. Well, there was a puzzled look among my Laotian friends, so I elaborated. Well, we all have storms, problems, worries, troubles, crises, and this story teaches that Jesus can give us peace in the midst of those storms. So, what are your storms? I asked. Again, more puzzled silence. Finally, one of the men hesitantly asked, well, do you mean that Jesus actually calmed the wind and the sea in the middle of a storm? Well, I thought he was finding the story incredulous, and I didn't want to get distracted with the problem of miracles, so I replied, yes, but we should not get hung up on the details of the miracle. We should remember that Jesus can calm the storms in our lives. Well, there was another stretch of awkward silence until another replied, well, if Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, he must be a very powerful man. And at this, they all nodded vigorously and chatted, ex- chattered excitedly to one another in Leal, or Lao. Except for me, the room was full of awe and wonder, mm. and I suddenly realized that they grasped the story better than I did. And I finally acknowledged, yes, Jesus is a very powerful person. In fact, Christians believe he's the creator of heaven and earth, and thus, of course, he has power over the wind and the waves. So uh, I'm, I'm going to pick back up th- just one little uh, P.S. at the end of this story by Mark Galley in just a second, but if we just stop right there and think, yeah, I totally relate to this story, So, th- and we think about these Laotian refugees, hey, they're not really processing this story the way a sophisticated person would. That's what Mark Galley was talking about at the beginning, that we, we really treat the story as metaphoric, because it has no traction in our everyday life. Why would we talk about Jesus' power over the wind and the waves right now when it doesn't really mean anything to us? That's not going to happen, we think inside. But the question is why? So Galley gives a great explanation um, for why, and, I th- and he, he does it by just simply being honest about what was happening inside him as he saw these Laotians react the way he did. So here's what he said. This simplistic answer of the Laotians would not have gone over in some of the more sophisticated congregations of which I've been a part. As I noted, it didn't go over well with me until I was confronted with my unbelief. The reasons for that are complex, but I think one is that the power of Christ frightens us, as well it should, and we'll do anything to avoid facing it as an ongoing reality, much to our loss. So here's where we come back to this idea of this firewall, that if the supernatural behavior of Jesus is scary to us, and it certainly was scary to his disciples and others around him, that 
you often hear this the the word fear used in response to what Jesus did because it was extraordinary what he was doing and if we we're just like them if we have a fundamental response of fear in response to the, to to his behavior then we can kind of create or erect this kind of invisible firewall where we can read about what Jesus did but it doesn't really spill over into our everyday life we don't really think that 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 compartment of reading about Jesus in the Bible would ever really uh, intrude into the compartment of our everyday life. I love this thing that Annie Dillard says. She's one of my favorite. She wrote, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? What she's saying is we, we say these things casually all the time. We talk about these supernatural things that Jesus does, but we don't really say them with the kind of impact as if they could happen today, that that sort of thing would crash into my everyday life. Uh, we were talking about this, this firewall earlier today and thinking through some of the reasons why we erect it. So we just talked about fear and that we're scared, but... There's some other ones that Becky and I came up with, like it's it's more safe and comfortable to study him than it is to experience Jesus. So studying Jesus keeps him at a comfortable, controllable distance, but experiencing Jesus is another thing altogether. I mean, how do you even do that? And, and if we did experience him, what could happen? And isn't that, like, weird? Uh, isn't It's normal to talk about Jesus, but... It's not that normal to experience Jesus and then talk about your experience. So that's another one. Why don't you cover a couple of those there, Becky? Well, we can be anxious about it. I think we worry that maybe we're not worthy. Um, worthy in what way? Like, 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 why would someone, why would he want to use someone like me? I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm not good enough um, for him to talk to me or maybe um, for the power of the Holy Spirit to work through me. Or for me to have an experience with an actual experience yeah. with Jesus, it's not going to happen. It might happen for somebody else, but, but not, not not for me. me. Yeah. So we're anxious about it. We might have a blockage, and um, this is a really common one. This could be maybe something that you need to walk away from. It could be a sin in your life. It could be something that you need to a cage that you need to be freed from. But a lot of times, blockage can be part of that. Being skeptical. I think that our I think our culture has a huge problem with this is skepticism. We are so skeptical of um, the possibility of anything um, supernatural being able to happen because it you know defies the big thing that we um, that we worship in the United States, which is science. And we are also you know, we feel cautious for good reason about um, not only in. Uh, inviting the supernatural into our lives, but cautious about <laughs> what it would look like if we did. Like, on, only weird people do that, really. So it makes How us... would other people view me? Right. I might look, like, weird. And... Right. Or you're, you're too extreme. Too extreme. You know, yeah, that's one of the sins of American life, is to be too extreme about anything. It's really true. And then, uh, you know, it's easy to rationalize stuff in our lives. Um you know, we it, when we rationalize things, it makes those things com- more comfortable and controllable than if we had no reason for them. 
if we didn't if we couldn't explain why that happened. And we see this. I, I mentioned in last week's podcast about this piece I heard on the radio about a researcher who's an audiologist who studies the impact of sound was trying to figure out if you don't believe that the walls of Jericho fell down because of a miracle, then let's just explore it as if the sound of these ram's horns being blown brought the walls down, and what would you have to—how many of those horns would you have to have? And it was like 700,000 horns to bring down those walls. But the, why are they even exploring that? It's because we're, we're saying at the front end, well, if the walls fell down, there must be a concrete reason— a scientifically explainable reason for that happening, and what would that be if, if it was? So that's a natural bent that we have. We, we try to rationalize these things because, by definition, the supernatural is beyond our natural way of thinking, and that's scary in and of itself. Well, Becky and I have had a long journey in this life with Jesus, and both of us have had some uh, tipping point, I guess I, I would call it, in our own journey with Jesus, where we, we became much more open to the supernatural movement of Jesus in our life than we had been before. Would you like to start and tell your, your story, Becky, first, and then I'll follow? Yeah, I think it was great. Our friend Steph, um, we were working on this podcast episode with her, and she, she kind of brought up like, hey, I don't know about you guys, but we were talking about how some people who, even if you're listening, this may be you right now, a lot of people say, uh, I don't, I've never heard God's voice. I, I just haven't. I've tried. I've prayed. I've really tried, and I just I haven't heard it. And so she was kind of sharing that that was kind of her experience as well. She had prayed and prayed and asked and asked and asked, and it just wasn't happening for her. And she kind of said to us, "Hey, I had like a single event. Like I had a like a single event that happened, and all of a sudden I could hear Jesus's voice." Was it the same way for you guys? And both Rick and I were like, yes, it was. I, I remember the day. And I think for my personal journey, there was, if I think about it, there was t- it, there was actually two parts. The first part was that I had to get the blockage out. And I had some major things in my life that were blocking me from a relationship with Jesus. So there was an encounter that happened where someone helped me unlock the cage and, and let me out of that cage. That was a really important step. Um, to get me back on track with a life with Jesus. Um, and that was in my, I was about 21 years old. And then I started going to church and I started out going to this very charismatic church because the person who had um, helped unlock that cage for me was going to this very charismatic church, which was completely opposite of my upbringing. I was brought up in a very evangelical environment. And so suddenly I'm with all these people who just really, belief that God is right here. And there was a moment when I went to the church service where a woman walked up to me and she just said, you haven't received, you have not received the spirit and he, he wants to be in you. And so I was a little bit terrified, but I also felt a lot of courage and boldness at that point. And I said, yes. And so a group of people came over and they prayed over me. And at that point, from that point on, I could hear, I could hear Jesus's voice and I felt, I felt a a walking presence with me all the time. Mm. So it was, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a uncomfortable moment. (laughs) Comfortable moment. Yeah. I mean, it's a loaded moment. And uh, it's funny because 
my story involves loaded moments too. It, it, there's a lot of common threads. Um, and, and if you talk to people who've had experiences like this, where they have been opened um, more vulnerably to the supernatural presence of Jesus in their everyday life, they, they have these kinds of common threads. Because my story was that I came up through a very uh, traditional, conventional, evangelical childhood as well, where basically I, all of the ways that we lived our life and knew Jesus was all located in our head. Um, it was all about studying and understanding and applying things. It was all located in our head. And I got to college, and I was on my own for the first time, and I had some significant medical issues in my first semester of college, and I felt lonely and was disconnected from friendship groups, and and uh, I was really struggling and having, having a, a really hard time of doubt where I thought, can I even make it here in college? And And as I persevered through that, I met some people that I really liked who went also to a charismatic church. And because they invited me, and I was, and I saw the possibility of community with these guys, I decided to do a scary thing for me, which was go to a charismatic church. I couldn't even conceive of myself going to one. And this church had like two, two-and-a-half-hour services. In every way, they, it was contrary to my natural bent. But what I did discover and develop a hunger and thirst for when I started going to this church was I realized that the people around me believed that Jesus actually did things right now in your midst. He wasn't locked inside this book. He actually lived his life with them, and and you never knew when Jesus might show up and do something extraordinary in your midst. This was a revelation to me that these people expected this to happen, and it gave me the taste of a possibility that maybe I could have an alive relationship with Jesus that wasn't mitigated simply by reading about him in the Bible. And so this church had a lot of issues. <laughs> I'm not trying to paint it as some kind of nirvana place. They, there was abuses of this kind of behavior. There was all kinds of stuff that happened at this church. But I, I did, one of the many times they invited people to come forward if they wanted a, a further release of the Holy Spirit in their life, I went forward, and I was prayed for. And what I know uh, happened in me is that immediately I had a hunger for reading Scripture that I had never had before. I like had an insatiable appetite for reading the Bible that I had never had before. It had nothing to do with discipline. I wasn't redoubling my efforts. It wasn't because I was had matured into it. It was literally like a, fl- a, a switch was flipped inside of me, and I had a sudden hunger to know Jesus. And, and it first was expressed through um, a hunger to read the Bible. So I had a, a clear uh, indicator for me that something happened there in me, because I was a different person after that. And it began a life of, um, of intimacy instead of distance in my relationship with Jesus, and an openness to the supernatural presence of Jesus that I began uh, a long journey toward an openness that he, he might intrude into my everyday life. And in a, in a sense, this firewall that we put up that is built by our fear 
and by our desire to stay safe, safe by distance, distancing him, and by our anxiety, and by our blockage, and by our plain just disbelief <clears throat> that any of this sort of thing could happen in our everyday life, that firewall began to come down for me, and the, the compartment that I put between the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of my everyday life started to deconstruct and disintegrate, and I started to expect more of him. And as we were, uh, Becky and I were, and Steph were talking about this earlier, I realized that in, in almost every encounter Jesus had with someone who was seeking something that he had, one of the precipitators of Jesus moving to, to meet this need was an act of great public courage. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, it, it just think randomly of any of these encounters, like the woman who comes up to him when he's in a crowd and touches the hem of his garment because she has this issue of blood and she's wanting healing. Well, she is an unclean woman who should never even get that close to Jesus, a a man, in the first place, and she gets close enough to him to touch the hem of his garment. And Jesus says immediately, hey, a power's gone out of me. There's a response of supernatural power that goes out when this woman does something courageous in public. You could talk about the centurion who says, my servant needs to be healed. No, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. I understand authority. You just say the word. That's an extraordinary statement. He's saying, you're supernatural, Jesus. I, I, I believe it. it. It's not even necessary for you to touch, physically touch my servant, because you're supernatural. So just say the word right now, and the authority that you have in your word, I know, will go across the space and heal my servant right now. Zacchaeus is another example, actually. He's hiding up in the tree, and he calls him out in front of the whole crowd, and that was also an act of boldness, um, both on Jesus's part, but also Zacchaeus had to come in front of the whole crowd, and he knew who he was. And then he invites Jesus to dinner with him, and you you, you could just keep going down the list. You, yep. you The Canaanite woman that we've talked about so many times on the podcast who follows along behind Jesus and begging for her daughter to be healed of the demon that's in her, and Jesus says, no, I've come for the children of Israel, not for dogs like you, and she persists and says, yes, but the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. So this is a public act of courageous boldness. And our friend Steph was sharing with us today that for her, she had been praying and praying and praying and praying about this, and all of a sudden she publicly got baptized in front of her whole church, and it was at that moment that everything changed for her. So it it got us talking about and there's no formulas, okay? We got to right. be clear about Absolutely. this. There's no formulas, but we we notice that there's a pattern both in 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 the stories in the Bible and also in our own personal experiences of that when there's an environment where you have to have some courage and you have to have some like kind of public there's a public space and you have to p- make yourself super uncomfortable that there's something about the combination of those things that has been seen to be a changing point where people receive the spirit and they they start to hear Jesus's voice. And some of these some of these movements uh, uh, we just listed what we think uh, some of these movements look like. So one is moving from scared to having courage. Another is moving from studying him to experiencing him. Another is moving from anxiety to being relaxed. Another is from continuing to prop up a blockage to giving up our blockage. 
Another is moving from skepticism to becoming like a child, because children aren't capable of skepticism. They aren't capable of it, they, they simply believe. Another is moving from a cautious stance to a risk-taking stance, or from a rational stance to a trusting stance. You can see that, like Becky said, that these are not formulas, Mm-mm. they're just understanding the kingdom of God and how things work in the kingdom of God. And how things work in the kingdom of God is that the supernatural often follows these acts of vulnerability and boldness and courage. they, They simply tend to follow that because faith is the currency of these things, and faith is not simply a mental assent. Uh, you know, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is your skin in the game, where you actually put yourself out there for whatever it is that you're that you're seeking. So, if Steph raised this question before our podcast today, so she struggled for many years um, seeing other people around her able to hear hear quote unquote the voice mm-hmm. of Jesus in their life, the voice of God in their life, and yet she tried and wanted it so badly and never seemed to be able to find that. And so the question then comes up, well, what's wrong with me? What am I not doing right? It's it's really, in the end, not about what you're not doing right. It's really about w- w- what is it in me that is uh, a, a blockage here? Is it my unwillingness to risk? Is it that I have a blockage that I'm not willing to give up? because it's sort of like the buoy I'm hanging on to? Am I overly cautious and unwilling to take a risk? I mean, in all of our stories, we were sort of driven, propelled toward the risk. We became desperate enough that we were willing to step out into something that was extraordinary and beyond our normal, cautious behavior, I guess is a way of saying it. And, and as a result of that, something opened up for us. Are there any of those in that list Becky, that that particularly stick out to you as far as progressions that that matter, uh, perhaps even in your own life, that had some traction in your own life, where you saw yourself moving from one to the other, and and therefore your life opened up because of it. Oh, for sure. I think going from being um, a skeptic, um, that was a big deal for me. Was being skeptical of um of Christianity and that was mostly because I had grown up around people that weren't really living it out and then it really caused me to be skeptical um probably also the um the the scared of being weird or different um you know when you're in your early 20s especially nobody wants to be weird or different that's the worst um so I think that you know I had when I decided to really take my faith seriously. It really changed everything about my life, including the kinds of people I hung out with. And it distanced me from people who um, had been my friends in, in the past. So there was a lot of changes that happened. And there was, I had to move out of the place that I was living in. And there was just a lot of things that had to change in my life. It was scary. Um, but when I found the courage to do it, it was worth it completely it changed my life in such radical ways that I never would have imagined were possible and and there were doors open to me that I didn't even think were possible so yeah that's good 
You know, the, the one that sticks out to me that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the movement from studying him to experiencing him. And I recognize if I look back on my own story, the comfort level that I have in studying Jesus and understanding Jesus and really even trying to theologically process some of the truths that he speaks about and, and understand them from many different vantage points, that is a wholly different thing than experiencing him in your life, expecting him to move in your life. So sometimes on the podcast we have focused on what does it look like to, for instance, hear the voice of God or follow the guidance of the Spirit, and things like these phrases that we throw out that that um, seem very daunting if we're going to pursue them in, in our everyday life, but what does it actually mean to experience Jesus in our in our everyday life, not just talk about him or study him? In part, for me, that has meant expecting to hear his voice, and I feel most like a child when I'm in that place of expectation. I, I feel most like a little kid who the thought that he wouldn't speak to me is anathema. It's like, well, of course he's going to. I, I, I expect him to. There's this kind of childlike expectation that happens, or I have uh, um, often prayed for people in a what I would say is a is a more experiential way, asking Jesus to help me pray for them, not out of my own head, but out of about out of His heart. So I wait for Him to guide and direct me on how I will pray for them. Um, and I've prayed for people who, um, I, for a while, I was involved in a ministry that uh, prayed for people who were either demon-obsessed or demon-possessed. You could take it any way you want. They, they had a demonic presence in their lives, and my, myself and my friend Bob would pray over these people. And to do that required a great deal of, uh, again, childlike dependence on the Spirit of Jesus, that we expected Him to move and do something in the life of this person— but we also didn't take responsibility for it. Like, oh, I got to do this right, or it's not going to work. Like a child, we simply expected Jesus to move, and we didn't take responsibility um, if he didn't move. We, we just played like kids on a playground, and th- that's maybe the greatest uh, metaphor for what it means to experience Jesus, that we just experiment and play things that we normally would simply uh, decide or um, ponder in a self-contained way, we invite him into them instead. Hey, G- I love uh, Becky's kind of classic example now is asking Jesus to help guide her in her menu planning for the week. That is a supernatural act in your everyday life, because it's asking Jesus to influence an everyday thing you're doing. And well, how, how do we go about actually finding that guidance and living out of it? The only thing I can say from my experience is it feels like becoming a child, having the courage to become a little child who expects the supernatural. Little kids don't see the difference between the natural and the supernatural, and that's part of what Jesus is trying to say. If you want to experience the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little kid again. Well, you guys, we have a lot to cover on this topic. Um, So this is the beginning of October. We're going to be doing a four-part series on the supernatural. Today's episode was kind of an overview about what is supernatural. So next week, we're going to be talking about the bad uses of the Holy Spirit, because as we mentioned earlier in this episode, sometimes people 
misuse this. So we're going to address that because it's important. Um, then the one after that, we're going to talk about the good uses of the Holy Spirit um, and examples of that. And then the last one is going to be really fun. We're going to talk about why is revelation in the Bible? <laughs> so yeah. we're going to talk about kind of the most kind of weird, crazy, supernatural yeah. chapter of the Bible. Crazy LSD trip of a bu- seriously book. Seriously yeah. <laughs> is weird. We're going to talk about that. Also, I wanted to let you know that October is officially Bible Month. I made up a Bible Month in July just because I really wanted a Bible Month earlier. But this is actually like the National Bible Month. Everyone is celebrating Bible Month in October. And we have a really special thing for you. Rick got to interview this woman. Her name is Kelly Nelson. Kelly Nelson. She is using the Jesus-centered Bible in her community to make huge impact. And when we recorded her story, we weren't really sure what we were going to do with it. And we just decided it was so great. It had to be its own kind of little mini episode. So it's about 15 minutes long. We're going to release it this month. And you can listen to this amazing testimony of what's happening in her community and how she's using the Jesus-centered Bible to do that. And it might inspire you. So go look for that episode. It's a little bonus thing, too. It's not replacing one of our four episodes. We're just going to release it alongside. Just going to release it. So you can go listen to that. It's just a short 15-minute episode. And the last thing I wanted to tell you is that if you haven't joined the pigs, we want to encourage you to do that. One of the things that I ask the pigs to do, and um, the pigs is a group of people who are really going all in for Jesus. They're, um, we call them the pigs because of a chapter in Rick Lawrence's book, The Jesus-Centered Life, called Living a Pig Life. And so if you want to learn more, you can pick up that book and check it out. Um, but you, being a pig is about just going all in. And th- this is a community where we give lots of extras. I did a live video last week, and I'm going to be doing another one next week. And we give, we give away stuff. We gave away three different products um, on, the, on that live video. So you get kind of sneak peeks. Uh, Rick is writing a book right now, so he's been sharing a lot about that. So you got, you get to be part of shaping that. You get to be a part of knowing what's going on in there. Um, but I asked the pigs um, to tell you why you should become a pig. So I'm going to read just a little story. Um, so this is from Robert, and he said, this is why you should be a pig, because life is all about shoulds, and what's one more should in our lives? <laughs> well, once you find out that being a pig is not about shoulds, but all about Jesus— that, that should gets turned upside down. Being a pig in the pig group is a chance for me to share in a community that is all for Jesus. I'm able to share my thoughts with beautiful and encouraging people with loving feedback. Our voices together stand to sound um, more like g- the good shepherd. We are able to reach one another at any time and play around in some mud puddles and that we struggle with. I don't feel threatened there. Everyone is sincere. Being part of this pig community gives me comfort because I know each one of them wants to know Jesus. And if you really want to know him, you will start paying more ridiculous attention to what he's saying. So that's a little testimony from our pig group. We'll be sharing these on the episodes at the end. Excellent. So remember, you can find out more information about everything we've talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenterLife.com. You just go to our podcast section, and this one, again, is Season 2, Episode 38. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk to you again next time. Bye.